I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and this is Launchpad, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs about the secrets to launching and growing their startups. I'm happy to welcome to the show Anand Sanwal, co-founder and CEO of CB Insights. Anand, welcome to Launchpad. Thanks for having me. You know, I like to start off by... Actually, first thing I'm going to do is point our listeners to your website. So it's cbinsights.com, the letter C, the letter B, insights.com. Okay, Anand, give us the elevator pitch for CB Insights. Yeah, so uh, CB Insights, we're a, a software and data company. What we do is we mine immense amounts of unstructured data, so patents, venture capital financing, news media, government grants to try to predict technology trends. Um, yeah, that's kind of us in a nutshell. All right. Well, make it. That's uh, that's a big description. Also, I think a little hard for most listeners to get our, their arms around because they're probably not users. So maybe you can walk us through a use case or a typical customer, or a typical question you might be able to answer. Yeah, sure thing. So, um, so you know, when, when we look at our, our customers, tend to be large corporations. So corporate strategy, corporate innovation. Uh, product groups. And so often they're trying to figure out what markets to enter or what companies to invest in or acquire. Um, and typically, we kind of like to say they make these decisions with the three Gs, which is Google searches, gut instinct, and guys with MBAs. <laughs> and, um, and our view is that there's things that machines are better at doing that are just beyond human cognition. So um, if you want to understand sort of which emerging markets or industries might be hot, um, you know, a really good way to do that is to follow the money and look at where patents are being filed and what Google and Alibaba are investing in and acquiring to get a really interesting view of, of where the world is going from a technology perspective. So we mine all of that unstructured data and try to figure out using machine learning kind of what are the signals and where, you know, what's trending up, what's trending down, either at the industry level or at the company level. All right. Well, I like take that uh, question for for as an example. I can imagine that question is one you could answer sort of generically and publish, and it wouldn't give me a reason to go back to your site every day or every week. So, what are some kinds of questions that might be quite specific to my business that I might really care about, and that might bring me back more than more than every quarter, let's say. Yeah, so I think, you know, a lot of folks are just trying to understand, um, you know, as sort of technology eats the world, right, mm -hmm. Which what are the new business models or companies that they should be on top of, right? And so, um, as an example, one of our sort of very popular sectors right now is sort of artificial intelligence, especially mm -hmm. as it applies to financial services. And so, big companies often have a challenge of innovating because, they're just not often set up to do it from a process and culture perspective. And so they're using these startups essentially as sort of outsourced R&D. And so what we can do is help them build a feed of, hey, here are all the companies, let's say, in banking that are doing things in AI that you should be cognizant of. And then on top of that, we can tell them over time, hey, amongst these thousand companies doing stuff in AI and banking, these are the 30 that have the most momentum, right? And so based on their hiring and news sentiment and other kind of um, factors, these are the companies that you should be paying the most attention to. Either they have struck into a business model or an opportunity that's really resonating that you should either try to copy or that you might want to buy. You might want to buy this company or you may want to partner with them. 
Um, but, you know, I think that idea of keeping on top of what's happening in sort of the uh, the startup realm is what keeps people coming back. Because unlike the public markets, there's not nicely structured data around this. So we're mining millions of, of sources every day to try to basically aggregate that and then give you kind of a central place you can go and get all that info on a sort of real-time basis. Yeah. Well, I want to just underscore something you said and maybe calibrate our listeners a little bit. I I mean, a market like AI would be vast. Let me just give an example. A, a relatively smaller world, one I follow fairly closely, is 3D printing. There are 300 companies making hardware in the 3D printing market. And most people have no idea that it's that vast. But at the dawn of an industry, you just have hundreds, hundreds of companies out there. Uh, so that's uh, just to calibrate. Um, yeah. You, you said something about mining the data sources and that they're not public markets. So give us a sense. What kinds of data could you are you able to mine? Because, I, 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 as you say, these are not public. This is not public information. Right. So we're mining everything from let's let's just say we're trying to assess the health of a company. Right. These are private companies, so they're not compelled to disclose their financials at any for you know for any reason. So. We got some money from the National Science Foundation to try to assess the health of these companies using sort of non-traditional signals. So we're looking at hiring activity. Within that, we're looking at what types of positions are you hiring for. So if you're hiring for a CFO or a head of HR, that's sort of a positive signal. If you're hiring a VP of sales every three months, that's a negative signal. Um, okay, so we, but let me Anand, let me just interrupt you there. Yeah. Where would I get the hiring data, or where do you get the hiring yeah, data? Yeah, so we mine job boards. Okay. Right? So it's all yeah. sort of uh, public. Then we'll look at news chatter, right? So just the yeah. overall volume of chatter about a company. We'll then look at the sentiment of that chatter. So if, if there's a lot of chatter, but it's all about lawsuits and customers hate you, that's obviously not a good signal. Mm -hmm. um, we look at social media. So we're relevant in certain sectors, especially, let's say, consumer tech. You know, are people talking about you on Facebook, Twitter, et cetera? Um, we'll pull in things like mobile app data, web traffic, um, we do some mining of partner and customer signing. So all of these things sort of smash together. We cut, we have a score called Mosaic that gives us a sense for, okay, how is this company doing on a both a relative and an absolute basis? Is it growing or is it or is it dying? Um, and so all of those things kind of combine to give us sort of this FICO score for a private company. Um, but again, it's all out there, and it's probably what a, an analyst at a venture firm or a corporate M and A you know, on a corporate M&A team would try to do manually. Um, we're just doing it at scale so we can, you know, do this for hundreds of thousands of private companies versus doing it for two or three at a time. Yeah. Uh, so this sounds really awesome. And in fact, my employer, I believe, is a customer, so I have access to it and I've used it a couple of times. But, but it does make me wonder about pricing and how you do that. Uh, for different kinds of customers and for different sizes of customers. So what would I pay for this, and how do you how do you explain your pricing? Yeah, so our pricing varies at the kind of our standard pricing is anywhere from starting at 20000 a year for um, what we call a team subscription. So a team mm -hmm. would be one functional group within a corporation. So if M&A wanted it, they would buy a team subscription, but then if product strategy wanted it, they'd have to buy another subscription. Mm -hmm. Um, and it goes up to about our standard pricing, 150k. The way we distinguish between the levels uh, is really determined by what capabilities you want. So if you want 
a very um, sort of if you want data, that's going to get you twenty. That's what twenty k buys you. Mm-hmm. If you want data plus analytics, you're moving up the spectrum. If you want data analytics and predictive sort of algorithms, the mosaic score I mentioned, you're moving further up the spectrum. And then if you want all of that plus access to our analysts who do a lot of research on these different spaces, then you're sort of at the one fifty k tier. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's it's very sort of modular the way we've built the pricing. Um, we've gotten away from the idea of seat-based pricing, so that's yep. why we do, that's why we do teams. Um, that way, a senior exec who probably isn't going to log in every day still has access, as does the analyst who's going to be really banging on our system all day long. Yeah, um, Anand, where did the where did the where did the idea come from? Yeah, so I used to work in uh, venture and M and A at American Express. Uh-huh. Um, so had seen, had used sort of all the dinosaurs in the industry, never was really very happy with any of the solutions and always wanted to do my own thing, do the entrepreneurial thing and, and sort of saw that, um, there wasn't a solution for my job that I thought was good. And then the other thing I noticed at Amex was that it was very difficult. We had a hard time. We used to lend to small businesses and we'd basically lend to small businesses on the back of the, uh, proprietor's credit score because we yeah. had no really good way of assessing the health of private companies. Um, so kind of those two things that I saw at Amex were sort of the genesis of, of CBI. And so, you know, left, uh, now it's been over six, seven years ago, um, and, uh, and started building CBI with a couple of colleagues from American Express who, who joined me. Um, what kind of, I, I got to say, I, I mean, I never had a job like that, but if you would have described this to me, I would have said, ah, geez, how many customers are there out there and what, what would they really pay for this? It seems like a pretty episodic need. Yeah. Um, you had your own personal insights, but, but what did you do to validate the opportunity? Yeah, so I, I probably didn't do as much as I should have, right? And mm-hmm. so I think, um, you know, when we came out and launched, I think we were really targeting, we had a pretty narrow view of the market. And so we... Um, learned really just by doing, you know, where we'd kind of gone wrong. So I think when we came out and built the product, we were targeting VCs, corporate M&A teams, and really sort of the tech world. Um, and we quickly realized, like, that, that market's just not that big. Um, mm. We were bootstrapped from the beginning. So the one thing that I think we got as a result of that was a lot of discipline around talking to customers regularly. Mm. And what we noticed was product strategy, strategy teams, business unit strategy teams were using us not to do deals, but just because they viewed this emerging data as a great indicator of where the world is going. Um, and so we realized that's a much bigger opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. We, can sell, we can sell Sequoia Capital one subscription. We can go sell Microsoft 15, right, because they're mm-hmm. such a massive company, and they have lots of different needs for our data. And so we um, kind of moved into that, um, you know, sort of, I guess, evolved the product to speak a little bit more to that sort of um, more analytical use case versus a deal-maker use case. Um, and that market's just very big. You know, we think of um, building sort of a programmatic McKinsey as sort of our end game. And, you know, obviously that market's very large for folks who want insights on competitors and, and emerging trends. So you're my third guest today, and all three of you very much bootstrapped or were very scrappy and careful in the early days. And, re- and and as you said, that gives you the discipline of really focusing 
on the customer and making sure you're delivering value. So I just want to underscore that insight for our listeners. We've heard it now three times. One of the benefits of, of being a little lean in the in the early days is it does bring this discipline of, of making sure you've, you're solving somebody's problem. Um, uh, you mentioned on, on the the building the product and it strikes me this is not a trivial product to build. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how you thought about the first version of the product and how you actually got it built. Yeah, so um, initially we were essentially a spreadsheet, right? So we had gone manually, John and myself, John's my co-founder, we sort of manually just went into press releases and started getting sort of structured data about Hmm. private companies. Um, started sharing that with some folks, and they said, hey, this is interesting, and they told us all of the sort of incumbents' products that they hated, um, which we were familiar with, and we said, hey, we're going to turn this into a platform. Um, so it was a pretty bare-bones product. I mean, I think when I look back at the first product, like it's actually quite embarrassing to say, like, oh, we actually launched with this. Um, but it did a few things. Not I couldn't I can't to be really can't I can't even say it did them very well it did them sort yeah. of mediocre the only good thing that we had in our space was that in information and data services the people we compete with are just completely dysfunctional and incompetent so we looked just better by comparison um, and so it was a really simple sort of screening tool so I want to show show me New York companies who've raised a Series A that are in you know health IT and it could do that and it couldn't do much else. Um, but that was actually a huge lifesaver and a time saver for folks. Um, and, yeah, our goal was just to sell from the beginning, right? So we were very focused on being, you know, and we really we ultimately did raise some money, but our goal was to revenue fund this thing forever. Um, if, you know, at least back then that was our ambition. Um, and, uh, yeah, we kind of built a minimum viable product, got it in the hands of some customers, and they liked it. And then, again, we just kept talking to them and saying, what part of your workflow is inefficient? What could we be doing better? And they, I think most of them like the fact that we were building the product basically to their specs. Um, um, and then we just continued to sort of iterate on the product. And then we're fortunate to hire a bunch of very, very smart engineers over time who've kind of really made it um, a world-class product at this point. I, I want to underscore another point you just made, which again is quite consistent with our other guests today, which is the minimum viable product. And I think in some ways, if you're not ashamed of your minimum viable product, it was probably too, you were probably biting off too much. So, I mean, I just love that idea that you almost want to be ashamed of the first product because it's better to learn if you're near the mark with an imperfect product than that you miss the mark with a, with a perfect product. Uh, so I like, I like that insight. Anand, maybe you could go back to something you said about financing. You said you bootstrapped, which forced you to be very disciplined. That was ultimately of a great value for you. And then you said you raised a little bit of money. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the financing history and how you thought about the decision of when to take money and from whom. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, having worked in venture, I'd kind of seen how the sausage was made. Um, so I was a little bit averse, honestly, to raising money, um, you know, especially at the early stages. I kind of, uh, you know, felt like um, we were in a business that didn't require that type of early funding. You know, if we were trying to build a consumer tech company, you need to go out and do the land grab. But we were in a B2B space um, and so thought we could bootstrap. We Our fundraising process was pretty atypical, so we bootstrapped to 
65 people, you know, millions of revenue. Um, and we had a client, our, a lot of our clients are investors, so we had one of our clients reach out a few years ago and said, hey, we love the product. You know, are you guys looking for funding? Uh, we basically said, you know, not interested. Um, but they, you know, kind of kept in touch. They of course, that's the best way to keep them interested, right, is to say no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we got a lot of that inbound over time. Um, you know, one of our requirements was if you're not a customer of the product, we'll never, we won't talk to you about it at all because you need to be a believer. Um, so that was a good filter for us. Um, and then, you know, our investor kind of just kept in touch over time. Um, and so we ended up raising $10 million last, uh, I think we announced last October. In terms of sort of what was the catalyst for that, I think one, it was it was it was a relatively easy process, right? So I see mm-hmm. friends of mine who do the sort of have to do the dog and pony show. Like that was just never of interest to us. We wanted to focus on product and customers. So um, you know, we just had one we had one sort of term sheet, one inbound, and we said, okay, we'll make this work. We didn't you know kind of do make it competitive in any way. Um, so it wasn't a distraction. I think that was key. The second thing was just in what we were noticing was that. It was it looked like a little bit of a pullback in tech, and so we thought this might be a good opportunity for us to go on offense. So while everybody's retrenching, um, you know, let's get enough money in the in the bank to um, potentially look at some small tuck-in M&A and do some other mm. things that we hadn't been thinking about. Um, and then third, you know, I think we saw the the sales uh, process was working, and the one negative, if if I can find any negative in in bootstrapping or what I like to call revenue funding, is that you do sometimes play it a bit safe. Um, and so we saw the the sales process was working and we thought, hey, we could really scale up our sales efforts with some extra money in the in the bank. And usually we would spend only after we'd booked the revenue. Um, but this let us sort of invest, uh, ex, you know, spend ahead of revenue a bit. So that was kind of the reason we took it. You know, we're, we're not very good at spending money, so it's been a year and we haven't touched any of the funding. But um, What? But, wow. Yeah, yeah. We'll, uh, yeah, but, you know, one day we'll figure out how to how to blow it on something. So. Yeah, I, well, I love all that stuff you said. So just to, if I do the math right, you went five or six years without, without yeah. raising significant capital. Yep. And that's a beautiful thing if you can do it. And and that puts you in a position to take the money on your own terms, which is is awesome. Yeah, I think that's a key point. You know, leverage. So I, I just see f- I have you know friends who try to raise really early, and you know, I left American Express to be my own boss. And I think you know having leverage in those conversations with investors is important. Um, you know, I think we did a very fair deal for both us and the investors, and we have every you know we take that that responsibility very seriously. But um, but yeah, we weren't if, if we if they chose not to invest and sort of give in on certain things that are important to us, you know, life would go on. We weren't raising it for survival. Yeah. Uh, I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you maybe a hard question. I I remember, I remember back in, it's got to have been almost maybe even 10 years ago. There was a nice uh, analytics tool out there called Urchin, which allowed you to do analytics on, on your website. And then one day Google shows up, with Google Analytics and uh, and offers it for free to the world and completely destroys that business. In fact, the whole the whole market. Mm-hmm. Um, is there is there that risk with Google today in your space? That is, they have said, you know, they want to index everything. They want to provide data on everything. What's the risk that one day Google says, you know what, we're going to build, uh, we're going to do what uh, what CB Insights does. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, 
you know, these are things that, like, I tend not to think a lot about just because mm-hmm. it's things that we have zero control over. Yeah. Um, you know, it's conceivable that they come in. I, you know, I think there's um, tools that are sort of very purpose-built, you know, for a very specific function. I think Google's got um, a desire to structure the world data, not just search it and have it indexed. So conceivably they could structure all of this data. Um, you know, it's a very, you know, we're a subscription business model. It's a very different model than theirs, mm-hmm. which is sort of very advertising-driven. But, you know, I think this this sort of um, topic or even, like, the topic of how are you going to exit, right? Like, these are mm-hmm. things that we just don't spend any time right. worrying about just because, like, it's the, it's the, it, these are two things we have just very little control over. So, you know, our view is we just keep building the business, and, and if it's valuable, options show up. Um, and, uh, you know, we've had, I will say we've had a bunch of venture-backed companies who've come into the space who've raised way more money than us. And, yeah. um, you know, I, you know money, buys, money buys time. It doesn't buy execution. So, um, you know, and, and, and big companies try to launch products against startups all the time, and, and they often, you know, you know, Google Plus versus Facebook or right. you know, whatever that was. You know, so um, so resources are obviously important, but it, it's not a guarantee that you're going to be successful. But, yeah, I think the short of it is we just can't control what other can't folks are doing. It. So don't really spend a lot of time thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, I like a good Zen philosophy. Um, all right, I want to. I have a couple sort of random questions here, and yeah. one of them is I was researching your show. I realized that CB, by the way, for the longest time, longest time, I thought CB referred to Crunchbase. Like, I thought yeah. you were a service. Yeah. Does that happen? It does happen. I mean, yeah. I think, um, yeah, folks who kind of come to us late sometimes does happen. But, yeah, not, yeah. not that frequently. Yeah, but All our right. name is, is much, our roots are much different than that. So Yeah, but I was going to ask you about the roots. So the original name of the, of the company was Chubby Brain. And my question it. is, Anna, what were you thinking? Yeah, so, you know, this is, uh, yeah, sort of naivete. Um, I think, you know, I had, over time, I had booked a lot of domains and was monetizing them. So it was one of the ones in sort of the inventory, um, you know, thought it was sort of the irreverent startup-y type name. Yeah. Um, I, still, I still like the name. The problem was when we went to an investment bank um, to sell the product, um, they said, hey, we really like it, but the problem is we can never buy something called Chubby Brain because... We have to put that on the. We put source, you know, whatever at the bottom right. of all of our pitch decks. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Chubby Brain's a credibility killer. So actually, that night, we, John and I, um, after that unsuccessful pitch, kind of came back to the office and actually changed the name of the company that evening. So, um, so yeah, you know, you make. Uh, I mean, I've made tons of bad decisions. That's probably up there in my uh, in my top ten. Yeah, it's. I mean, I I think the same thing. It's it's. I should probably shouldn't poke fun of companies on the radio, but uh, SurveyMonkey. I think the same thing. Are you really gonna? Is IBM really gonna put SurveyMonkey at the bottom of their pitch deck? Right. It's just one of those challenges. I think. Uh, and I, I suppose let me be a little more generous. You got to think pretty carefully about what your segment is, and what's going to resonate with them. And a very consumer, youthful, edgier segment might resonate perfectly fine with chubby brain but 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 not american express yeah yeah and but i i will say like and you know we have a newsletter that reaches a couple hundred thousand folks now and i you know although our name is a bit more grown up now like we are pretty irreverent and you know conversational and and we're i think a bit atypical from a b2b perspective there yeah. so um and it works like it actually 
is probably the single biggest factor driving our growth is that people like the fact that we call it like we see it. We don't use corporate jargon. So I think you have to you can you have to pick your spots. A name is obviously very fundamental to who you are. Yeah. We just we pick poorly in the beginning, but yeah, I think like you can be edgier and things and and yeah, I mean B2B is sort of in my view is sort of starving for that. Like there's just right. so many boring kind of nameless, you know, sort of anonymous brands out there. Um and so it's helped us break through by being a little bit contrarian and and um conversational at times. Yeah. Um you know, it's just we're talking, I'm thinking about our listeners. I mean, a bunch I would say most of our listeners work for big companies that would be potential customers. But I was thinking also about the a more consumer, more individual user oriented product. Is that one of the adjacencies that you're considering or that you would consider? So we started in that market. So, you know, our pricing now, we average about, you know, I think our average subscription now is just under 50 K. When we mm-hmm. started, we were actually a hundred dollar a month, $200 a month mm. product. Um, and our, and our thesis initially before we even went into like the institutional market was, Angel investors and, and entrepreneurs would love this data, um, and we thought we could sort of democratize it and, and all that good yeah. stuff. And what we realized very quickly was um, they were that segment was sort of the perfect recipe for building a terrible SaaS company. Um, <laughs> so it was very low lifetime value, very high churn, very high support requirements. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, they're not they're just not familiar with how to use a data product. So there was constant support. You know, entrepreneur would basically get enough data, raise his round or her round, and then would churn out. Um, and so, yeah, we very quickly kind of realized that that wasn't the best place. And then our corporate clients said, "Hey, listen, I need to be when I have a when I have an issue, I need to know I'm ahead of the guy who's like paying, you know, who's an entrepreneur, yeah, yeah. right?" And so then we started differentiating on service as well. And yeah, then we kind of never looked back. So yeah. I think there's. There's a couple things we're, we're messing with that will have some applications to the founder segment, but it'll be their investors giving them access to our platform. So they'll, somebody will be paying for it, and it'll be the institutional side, and then mm-hmm. their founders will have access by virtue of their their uh, investor's subscription. You know, I, we're we're basically out of time, but I just want to ask for your comment and opinion on something. We I would say one of the most hyped concepts today is big data and machine learning is there are we at the dawn of a new age in terms of machine learning and and big data uh or has nothing really changed and we're we're just making a lot of uh, much ado about nothing yeah so i think um there's a lot of it's a there's it's definitely become a buzzword right Mm -hmm. and and we've seen this ourselves right like for for a while, people just called us a data services company, and then all of a sudden, investors reached out to us and said, hey, we're really interested in big data, and CB Insights is big data. And then, you know, 12 months ago, it was, hey, CB Insights is predictive analytics, because that was sort of the soup of the day. Um, so I think we see that, but I will say, like, I mean, our entire business is built on this idea of taking immense amounts of unstructured data and turning it into stuff that's useful. You know, the technology is now available to do that. There is an immense amount of sort of data exhaust out there that can be used. So, and we've built a business that's doing, you know, tens of millions of revenue now as a result. Um, So it's, you know, there's a real opportunity here, but there is definitely a good number of folks, I think, that sort of jump on, you know, every sort of flavor of the month because that helps them 
get press or fundraise or whatever it might be. But yeah, I mean, we see some, I think we're amongst them, some real companies that are being built and solving some interesting problems using, using, you know, big data. Yeah. Well, you know, this is one of the most compelling applications I've seen and one of those where I really do look at and say, wow, you know, you are taking this unstructured data and making some sense out of it. Um, Anand, we're, we're out of time, but thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. You can follow CB Insights on Twitter at CB Insights. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, on Sirius XM Channel 111. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes.